Hey everyone, welcome to Climb by VSC, a weekly show covering the most exciting developments in the world of climate innovation. My name is Jacob Poor, general partner of VSC Ventures and co-host of Climb. Every week, I or a member of our VSC team will speak with pioneers in the climate tech world about emerging technologies and novel ideas that will turn the tide on climate change. We've heard enough of the doom and gloom. It's time for stories about purpose-driven innovation that lead to sustainable, positive change. I'm psyched for you all to hear this conversation between my partner and founder of VSC, Vijay Chatta, and the incomparable Nick Hala, who helped build Impossible Foods. I hope all of you came hungry for some plant-based knowledge, and I'm so happy that you decided to join us. Now, let's climb. Hello, everybody. We're here for another episode of the VSC Climb podcast. Uh, I'm Vijay Chatta, one of the general partners here at VSC Ventures, and we're very excited to have Nick Hala uh, as our guest today to join. Uh, Nick has had an amazing journey and is going to speak a lot about the experience of scaling uh, impossible foods. So uh, just a quick background on Nick. The last 10 years, he helped build the company Impossible Foods from the ground up, forming an amazing team in developing and commercializing delicious, sustainable plant-based foods to address many global food production issues. Today, it's all about Nick uh, giving insights and experience and wisdom to all the founders that are out there listening uh, to think about how to scale companies in this space. So with that, Nick, uh, thank you for joining, first of all. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and uh, share a bit of my story, at least. Excellent. With that, I thought maybe we could just start with your background you know, as an engineer and what got you inspired, first of all, to get into the food space and then more specifically to get into the startup space. Yeah, so I, my background going way back, I grew up on a, a dairy farm in the Midwest of the U.S. And so I kind of been involved in food and agriculture most of my life. And I think, you know, a couple of things I picked up that really stuck with me from the dairy farm. One is we're on the land 365 days of the year. Um, you're raising animals, producing food. And I think that just drove into me a really deep respect and uh, excitement for working on sustainability and like environmental issues. And two, it's like a, it is a form of entrepreneurship. It's a very hard form of entrepreneurship where you have to you know, make the dairy farm run with very little money, with very little control over pricing or weather and you know big factors that affect your business. Um, but it is, it's a family farm. All my brothers and sisters have their own businesses. And so I was always driven by having some sort of business that could improve the environmental sustainability of the world, even back in high school. And then as I started looking at that, I got really driven and interested in science and technology as the way to do it. And so when I went to undergrad, I studied chemical engineering, and it was all focused on ways to you know, create more sustainable systems. Got it. And then that took you to uh, undergrad. And then tell us about that sort of journey, sort of what you were studying there and what any particular uh, areas that got you really inspired to further along in sort of your path. So I got to undergrad. Um, I initially started in material science engineering. I just came from a conversation as uh, another person who was in material science uh, that's doing some food tech stuff now. And I was fascinated as just looking at, you know, how the future of materials in the world would move. But I switched to chemical engineering because I love chemistry and just how the chemical makeup is, um, is of all the different pieces of the world and how much we can change it and make a much better world. And so I worked in uh, diesel exhaust for a bit. Uh, this is kind of a research collaboration between mechanical engineering and chemistry and how to make diesel exhaust burn much more cleanly and efficiently. Um, I designed batteries. I designed biofuels facilities in undergrad. Um, but I really had no idea where to go after that. As an undergrad coming from a big state school, coming from a small family farm, you'd have like the big oil and gas and chemical companies recruiting. 
but that's not really where I wanted to put my time and effort into. I wanted to really work on creating something and create something much more sustainable, which then led me to looking at how I can, you know, change systems and build systems and general, and it, that led me to general mills. I wasn't intending to go back into food. My intention at that point is actually not to do food, but it was a cool way to look at how businesses go from a consumer insight and a consumer home. Cause general mills is a really marketing consumer driven company. And so a lot of the ideas start with a consumer insight and saying, okay, consumers are looking for this type of application, this type of a product. And then us in R and D would be trying to find ways to make that happen, make a product, test it. And then once you had a product that seemed like a fit, then go find how to make it. And so it's kind of cool to see the journey from being in a consumer's home to all the way going to the manufacturing floor and making it happen. And then two years in new products and then two years in technology development in that. And it was, it was very interesting, but it didn't hit my like sustainability bend that I really wanted to focus on. And so that led me out to grad school out here in California. What was your first impressions when you got to Stanford and um, how did that shape where you are now? Yeah, I've definitely, I found out very quickly, I'm not the typical Stanford uh, business school uh, student. I'm kind of like the grungy engineer farmer who actually was like an engineer, like, with, you know, getting your hands dirty every day. Um, but I think that also kind of set me apart in a lot of ways because I did have a very different perspective. I remember like a lot of my classmates will remember one of our first strategy classes. There was like a case study on, I think it was like water meters. And when we were in manufacturing facilities, like your inputs in, whether it's flour, water, shortening, sugar, whatever it is that you're putting in these systems, that is like your initial control point. If you don't get that right, nothing else is going to go right. And so you just kind of eventually learn about water meters. We had a case study and like the professor had something like, like well, said something. And I was like, well, that's not how water meters work. This is how they work. And people are like, what? Wait, how does somebody actually know that? And it kind of set me up as like a different leg up in the class where I was like, oh, I have a technical background that is, you know, very different than really most people in the class. And that then I then I applied that to, you know, what I could do within business school. For me, like the business school stuff was all pretty new. I'd never heard of Silicon Valley. I'd never heard of VC before. I never heard of Goldman being BCG, like these companies that, you know, are, you know, big recruiters out of the out of these schools. And that's also not what I was looking for. I was looking to start a business. And so I got really deep into the venture world pretty quickly when I got there, because that's where a lot of the new technology ideas and scalable technologies and things that were focused on sustainability like that I wanted to work on were being incubated. And this was like the, you know, 2009, 2010, kind of towards the end of the clean tech 1.0 movement. And so I was looking at different jobs I could do. I got myself into a solar energy company that was stealth, that was doing cogeneration. And so it was kind of fun to see a 25 person company now compared to General Mills, which was really the only company I had worked at before, you know, and it's totally different operation, totally different ways to succeed uh, within this. And I ended up working directly with the CMO initially and then to the CEO. And I found out very quickly I could build a rapport with the CEO much stronger than really the CMO could um, because I could talk the technical side. He was a PhD physicist. And so we could just sit here and spar back and forth on numbers and designs and different calculations. And I, I still like talk to him probably every couple months on something. Was there one class that stood out to you that has still had the most impact and how you operate? Well, so this will be a very different answer. So one of the classes that the Stanford GSB is really known for is uh, it's dubbed touchy feely, which yep. is I would say, the very opposite side of like my education and my background it was probably one of the most useful classes for me because of that. Cause it was, you know, it's interpersonal dynamics is how do people relate to me? How do I relate to people and how do you build better relationships? And I think that's something we use every single day of our life, whether it's personal and in work. And I think as you build and grow teams and grow companies, that skill set is 
probably more important than any technical skill set that you can ever have. So give me an example of how you've used it at some point, some pivotal point where that knowledge came in handy. Um, it's a good question. It's, it's one of those things you use on a day-to-day basis, like all the time. I remember, you know, maybe some of the pivotal points is when you get to like um, just management and how to help people succeed. And, you know, two of the values we had at Impossible very early on were um, be kind. We want to work with people that are good people, kind to people. We're good to our customers, good to our consumers and everyone we work with and be candid. And it's like, yeah, we want to be honest and upfront so you can move fast. And we would always have run into situations where people are like, well, how can I be kind if I'm candid? Because that's not going to be very nice. It's like, well, if I'm not doing something right, the kindest thing you can do is tell me. <laughs> now, you don't have to tell me in a, like, a rough way. You can tell me in a constructive way. And that's where like the touchy-feely skills come in a lot. It's like, okay, if I'm not doing well, what I want people to do is tell me and tell me in a way that can help me get to a better position. And I think I learned a lot of skills in that class to do that. And so, you know, I I was thinking about, you know, management of one person on the team and it got into a very heated place. And I just kind of stepped back and I used a lot of tools of like, how can I deescalate this, make it less personal? And they would teach like, I think there's a term like stay on your side of the net. And so you're not putting yourself like in their shoes in a way you're trying to stay in your shoes and saying, this is how it's affecting me. Um, and it really helped to de-escalate the solution and get to a place where then we can actually continue to build a relationship and succeed in the office. That's great. Kind and candid. I like that. Okay. So now let's talk about that sort of your, what are the, or or those early touch points then on getting into impossible foods? Yeah. So the way I ended up getting to impossible, I was looking at all kinds of different ideas. I was doing a dual degree. So I had a lot of flexibility in school, whether I did a second internship, I tried to start a company or I took a full-time job, finished uh, classes on the side. And so I was doing a ton of networking, trying to find what I was going to do. And I did, like I said, I did get pretty deep in the venture world. And so one of the partners I was talking to, who was, uh, who Samir call at uh, Coastal Ventures, it told me, it's like, hey, I got this perfect thing for you. It's sort of clean tech, clean energy. It's a huge impact, really early. Uh, fits my background well. He's like, but I can't tell you. I was like, all right. So it's probably something in food or ag since that's what I've done my entire career. But definitely something sustainability driven because that's really what I was focused hundred like completely on. And then when they invested in Pad, introduced me to him. And we just hit it off. We hit it off on how we wanted to build a team. And this comes back to the values. We talked a lot, actually, not directly on values but pretty indirectly in how we would like the types of people we'd want to hire, the type of team we'd want to build. And then the mission is like, I had been in food and ag most of my life. And when I came out here, it was all about renewable energy and electric transportation and things like this. Cause that's where I saw science, technology and global environmental sustainability coming together. Now the reality was animal agriculture uses 45% of the land surface every year, more than 25% of all the water consumed every year, more greenhouse gas than the entire transportation industry by far the biggest driver of species loss and no one was working. And we look at this and it's like, okay, that's a massive issue, but we need food. And meat and dairy consumption are continuing to increase globally. So how's this gonna work? Uh, but there's a huge opportunity. If you take a beef cow and you look at the calorie and the protein conversion from plants into you know, meat that we consume, the cow's a 3% efficient technology. So every 33 grams of protein a cow consumes, we consume one gram of protein as meat. And so if you look at that, that's a huge opportunity to do something much, much more efficient. There's not many industries that exist that survive that are 3% efficient. And so, I mean, the way we use animals for agriculture now is really as a production factory. And so our vision was, you know, we're going to create a much better way to do this. That's much more sustainable, much more scalable, 
and really beat the animal at really every metric that matters. And I, when we got into that, I was like, you know what, that makes a lot of sense. And this is obviously a big flyer. Um, it was just an idea at this point in time. Um, but if we can do it, the way we can change the world is much bigger than if I joined another solar energy company. And at the point at which you joined, how big was the team and what were the immediate goals? What were the one year goals from when you joined? Yeah. Um, so my first day in the office is our uh, company anniversary. So it was me, Pat, and then um, Jackie, who was an office manager. So it was the three of us. And then we probably got to 10 people by end of the year. This was summer. So towards the end of the year. And one of the first things that Pat gave me, so Pat was still at Stanford at this point in time. And he's like, all right, so we need to start. So the best way we can start is get to get everything, get all the tools that we can possibly find. So give me every single plant-based ingredient in the world. And I'm like, all right, like any more specificity on that? It's like, no, just get every single plant-based ingredient in the world. So we have a toolkit to start building from. And so then you kind of take that and you, it's like, Pat's an amazing visionary. I can see like the way the world should be and with the great ideas on how to get there. And so my, a lot of my job was figure out how to put into something more executional, execution oriented. So, okay, so how do I take that statement of every plant-based ingredient in the world and make that into something that we can actually buy? And so I found like a plant-based, an oil company that was more of a redistributor. I said, all right, can I get one of everything? I was like, well, what do you mean? I was like, we never had a request like that before. Like, okay, put some parameters in. It has to be less than $1,000 a pound. <laughs> And so not like these like weird, really weird ones. And it has to be this. And you end up getting like 80 different oils that then now the research team can work from. Because the first two years were really technology development to understand what actually makes meat, fish, and dairy foods perform, taste, cook the way they do. And once we had to understand those fundamentals, go into the plant-based world and try to find ways to beat that. And so it's really scientific development for the first two years before we even got to products. That's a fascinating framework, uh, right, to start from, which is literally what are all the ingredients, right? Or what are all the, right. what are the tools in the toolbox? Yep. And we were doing this in a bunch of different ways. And we also had some cheese stuff going on. And one of the, the funnier ones I had is, uh, so you can make uh, like artisanal cheeses in a lot of different ways. You typically use cheesecloth. Uh, but one of the other ways you can do it, which I had no idea on, is use uh, pantyhose. They are much better than leave like marks in the cheese. And so one of the chefs is like, this is the best way to do it. And so I was trying to like source a bulk supply of this. And so I'm calling all these places, trying to figure out a way to get a bulk supply of this, which led to a lot of fascinating conversations. And eventually I found one. Now it wasn't really a scalable way to do it, but you kind of, you chase stuff down. It's like, Hey, that is an interesting idea. Let's go see if we can make it happen. So you're going to get bulk panios. Is that what you're saying there in terms of? That's right. So you you don't get it. A lot of times you don't get into what you expect you're getting yourself into. <laughs> Excellent. I'm interested to see all the retargeted ads that came your way. Yeah, totally. This is a decade, essentially a decade long uh, build here. What are those chunks of time, I guess, as I would say? How do you see that? Yeah. So they're all aligned to milestones. Like the first set of milestones are, can we create uh, learnings and tools and technology that can really change the way we make food and make it a better way? And we learn things like heme drives all the flavor chemistry of meat. And so those are like really powerful tools that didn't exist before. And then the series B, and this does align relatively well with the financing rounds, was like, okay, so now we have these tools. Can we make a product? So you move more towards making that MVP product and saying, okay, take these tools. Can we make a product? And we decided to focus on ground beef for a lot of strategic reasons. And then by the end of the series B, we had a product. You could taste it. You could see how, it, how it's working. And so then we're like, oh, we have a product, but it's not necessarily scalable. 
And it was, you could see paths to get there, but it wasn't scalable. So the Series C was really to make a scalable product. How do we get our production systems in order and in line, uh, get the costs uh, to a point that's not lab and it's more you know, industrial scale systems and costs. And by the end of that, we had that in line. So then the next round was to take it to market. And so the Series D was then to go to market, take all the technology, all the research that we had done, and prove there is a market for this. And then after that, it's growth stages. So it's all about, that's when it becomes much more sales, marketing, operations um, after that. And so you want to continue to, you know, go up 50 to 100% as a company of size, you know, every year, stuff like that, that really shows that the market is grabbing onto it. Yeah, that's fantastic. And now in terms of that, um, what were the, I guess if you look back now, what were some of the early mistakes made? Uh, Also like sort of great decisions. I mean, the company's an amazing brand, but were there any particular mistakes that you would share with a founder making something today? Yeah, I think I'm very much a proponent of you make the best decision with the information you have in front of you at the time, knowing that it might not be the best decision six, six to 12 months or even five years from now. And then you have to build in. So it's like the if you're very confident, you can you know double down and you know invest one way. If you're like 80% confident, you invest a bit, a bit different. And so for us, it's like we did have this hypothesis early that Pat and the scientists had that you know, heme was going to be important. And so we looked at this and there's a lot of heme in the root systems of legumes uh, globally. And so heme is really in every plant or animal really alive. It's a main function of most cells. Um, but in meat, it's very concentrated. Um, but we did have a source where you could, you could look at these root systems and it would be like blood red. And so it was that high concentration. So we were building farming systems for how to do this. And I spent, and the team spent probably a year to two years building these systems, trying to figure out how to grow, harvest, came from plants and it was a total dead end. Um, but as we started doing this, we started talking to more people and we found, you know, we really found a way in fermentation. And in the biomed world, you know, fermentation is pretty expensive, but there are actually quite a few industrial fermentation processes that are very cheap, very dirty, but very cheap. And so we kind of had to look at that and say, well, we're not like biomedical or we're not industrial. It's like, can we make a fermentation process for this protein that can scale and we, the industrial stuff shows you can scale, but at a cost that is, you know, still food grade um, as well and something for this protein. And it was so much better than, you know, trying to do it by agricultural base. Um, but in order to do that, you have to have a really high, um, I would say, real high utility for the amount that you put in there. Because if you're trying to do a full product, that would be a very expensive. But as you know, heme is a very powerful molecule. So a small amount creates a big flavor. And so I think that's, you know, the hard part was like up front, we were trying to grow it and harvest and build these systems that were completely unscalable. And we're trying to build models on how this could be scalable, which on paper could theoretically work on a practicality basis. Really, really tough to see. Um, Mm -hmm. And now from a fermentation side, then we had a scalable way that we found. And it turned into be one of the big parts of the business and the brand. That's great. And so, I mean, is there a lesson there? It just sounds like it's try things, right? And be be ready to, to pivot um, when they don't scale as you want? I mean, is that sort of the lesson there? Yeah, I think for us, I think it's different for every company. For us, we had a big vision. And our big vision was animals are used as a technology right now to produce food at a massive scale. It's insanely inefficient, insanely destructive to the environment. We're going to find a better way. And that vision is never changed. We're going to create a better food agricultural system by plate, by transitioning all meat products to a plant-based ecosystem. Now, how we've, get, how we've gotten there has changed a lot. Yeah. And so how do you pivot around this? And I think that's kind of, you know, maybe some advice is, you know, you want to have a vision of what you're building and, you know, the vision is probably going to be pretty steady 
Um, unless you're like really off and you learn some stuff that, okay, maybe this isn't even the right vision to have anymore. But then how you get there, you should be on a windy road. Because yep. if you if you go down the same road and the same path the entire time, the chances are you're missing a lot. Yeah. So you mentioned one point there around process and you're saying some of these particular processes may have been dirtier than others. I mean, maybe think about the classic idea of the Tesla argument. Well, okay, it doesn't use emissions, but it does use a lot of oil to manufacture the pieces sure. of making that car. Like, is that is that like a conflict that's ever come up or how do you weigh that? Well, you can't optimize everything up front. If you try to get the perfect product in from day one and start with from day one, you're going to never launch. And so you do have to make trade-offs and say how far you are. For us, a lot of you could say like product quality is like we wanted to make sure we competed head-on-head with meat. We're not a veggie burger. We're competing head-on-head with meat with this. And so we needed a product that at least did that and we got there. Um, but it was ne- not nearly what the product is today uh, from a quality perspective. It's getting better and better every day. And from a research perspective, we would have never launched if you were just trying to create the perfect product. And you can do this from a sustainability lens, too. It's okay if you try to build the best sustainable food supply chain, you're probably using, you know, some different ingredients and stuff, too, that you have to build a brand new supply chain for. If you're doing that and you're trying to create a new ingredient supply chain along with a new product and along with a new market, you're, you know, tripling your risk in a lot of ways. And so you have to look at what's out there and say, okay, what is the best we can do that still matches up with the vision and the mission that is still much more sustainable, of course, than, you know, what we're replacing, which is the core of the company. And then over time, you're going to get better and better knowing that. Yeah, I love that. You know, you and the company made a very conscious decision around how you want to position the food that you create and, and, and sort of what is it going up against and what is it not? Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I think there's been you know veggie products out in the market for a long, long time. I I was a very avid meat eater um, when we started the company. I came from a you know beef and dairy farm, and I tried all the products and I just couldn't believe people ate them. It was so far off of what I expected essentially from that sensory experience when I was looking for that sensory experience. And so when we were going to market, we knew that was some baggage that hung out there. And so as we go to market, it's like how can we get by that baggage in a smart way to rebrand our products comparatively and really honestly rebranding the industry. And so what we ended up doing is say, okay, the best way to do this is if we can get the, the meat chefs of America, kind of like the meat farmers of America, in some ways from the culinary perspective, the meat chefs of America say, oh, this is really good. My consumers want this. And that was uh, really powerful as we went to the market that way. We didn't have a lot of supply anyway, so we wanted to be very targeted with what we did out of our pilot facility. And it really enabled us to have a very, you know, loud voice in saying this and really setting up the position where this is not your traditional veggie burger. This is meat made from plants for meat eaters that can really satisfy that craving and that need. And then you start expanding from there. Was there uh, any pushback from uh, the media, from influencers, from restaurants on where they put you in the bucket, right? Like there's very little through branding on menus at this point in time. And so when we put impossible on the menu and you put the flag, we start putting the flag on the burger that represented the product. And I remember going to our first launch restaurant like a week after we launched and there was a table of like probably 10 um, people, but probably shortly after college age. And once the food came out, I don't think anybody spoke for like five minutes. They were taking pictures and probably posting on Instagram and stuff like this. Like, oh, this is fascinating. And then what it happens then is, you know, by putting impossible on the menu, it actually drives way more trial because people started to understand what the brand was and what it meant. And people were seeking it out. And by seeking it out then, it in, then for us, if we go to new restaurants, it wasn't as much of a sale and say, hey, this is working. And if they didn't do that, we had the data too that say, if you don't like brand it impossible, 
and you know, put it in the menu this way, then it doesn't sell as well. And we had that data. And so you, you build the case studies up that helps you tell the story. But yeah. at the end of the day, the restaurant can do what they want. It's their restaurant. Right. We're selling them a product. But ultimately, the ones that have done the best are ones that believe in the vision, right? They, they want it on there for a reason. They believe in this and therefore may make sure that it's branded as such. That's right. And who are, so who are our salespeople? Our salespeople are the, the, the staff. They're the ones who are talking to the consumers uh, at the time of point of purchase. It's not us. And so we're selling that there. And so you want them to be advocates of the mission, advocates of the product. And we would do a lot of training, especially in the early restaurants and how to talk about the products and the company and the mission. For a new category where there's a large volume of, quote, salespeople out there that need to learn or be educated and, and engage and, and co-create what were some of the sort of strategies that worked the best and maybe anything that you did new that wasn't done before? Well, I think, you know, one, the things that we did new is one, what we talked about, like branding through the menu. So the name is on the menu with it, along with the flag that came out. And so we would just give restaurants the, the flags with the product. And so it wasn't you had to buy it or anything like this. It was already there. And so they wanted to use it. And so that was kind of a starting point to be able to uh, drive awareness. And then with uh, like training, it's interesting because we're very particular at this point in time, especially if we're building the brand new about how to talk about it, but it's not going to be exactly the same. So you have to simplify. You have to create a really simple message that you know people can grab onto, people can remember and use. And then typically in a lot of back of the house restaurants, or it's just in restaurants, it's an industry that has a lot of turnover. Mm-hmm. And so for the first restaurants, we were pretty hands-on and do quite a few trainings and update it relatively frequently. Once you start expanding, you totally lose that capability. There's no way that's a scalable system. So it's a, effectively a seeding mechanism for the industry and for the brand, knowing that it's not going to be a scalable mechanism. And over time, then you create like you know books and manuals and stuff like this that certainly are not nearly as effective, effective but much more scalable. Mm-hmm. And I think scale businesses across the board, I think about this a lot, is that, you know the, the right tactics at stage one versus stage two versus stage three often are very different, even if it's the same end goal. Were there any things you did specifically on social media, for example, or with portals to, you know, scale that? Yeah, we definitely did. I mean, we created our, you know, the traditional social media um, sites for the products and, you know, different hashtags and different campaigns. I think the most effective typically still as, as a, as that point of sale, that's where people are making decisions on food, whether it's at a, on a restaurant with a table tent or on the menu or with the servers um, to on the retailers with like flyers and stuff like this, so like that typically ends up being where you capture eyeballs and attention more effectively in the food world. Uh, but you do kind of have the background noise going there. The other one that we actually did a lot of is we did engage with the media a lot. I think there's a bunch of pieces here. Like one is we had a technological solution and a product that was really good. That was a positive story. This is something that you can go out to your local restaurant or retailer and buy and feel really good about it. Um, and it's you know making the world a better place and have an experience that you really enjoy. And so I think that it engaged media in a lot of ways that was very beneficial for us and for them too, because there's also there's, there's plenty of negative stories that always get out there as we see in the media all the time. Like having kind of the feel good positive stories are also really important to have. I think we need more of that, especially in the climate world. Like the climate technology and the climate industry is so early uh, that we need some big wins and some things that people want to come and say, hey, this is really working. This is making you know this part of climate tech, you know, better and better. And this is the future we're going to go. Because as you have those wins, then it encourages people to double down like we saw in the plant-based industry. And, oh, and there's thousands of companies in this now globally. And when we started, there was a couple. 
that yeah, totally makes sense. And that I we heard that ourselves even when with the media dinner that you were part of that there's there's an interest now from from a lot of media outlets that were actually have been quite uh, you know jaded if not critical of the technology industry over the past let's say six years that are you know looking to be positive and, and excited actually about what's happening. And there's so much positive and exciting things happening. And I get asked this a lot, you know, working in climate, it's like, do you have, I get asked a lot, it's like, do I have climate anxiety? I was like, to a certain extent, yes. But I also, I'm just an optimist at heart, I think, too. And there's so many people that want to work on this, that want to do good. And so when you have that much energy going into um, industry and into a movement, good things happen. Yeah, absolutely. Now, tell us a little bit about like the, the food tech world right now. So, I mean, because of Impossible and a couple other companies, you've paved the route for, for other founders are there things that in particular are much easier now to go out and build in terms of startups in this space that just weren't weren't built yet when you started that that are huge advantages? Well, I mean, you take this and it's a physical goods industry. So when you think about physical goods, it's like hard goods are hard. Hard technology is hard. And like software, you you can scale in much you know different ways. You don't have to have quite as much of the ecosystem typically built around. And so for us, we even go back to that story, like when we started the company and saying, give, give me every single plant-based ingredient. You know, there's a certain number of them. There's not that many that are really catered to this type of uh, function or this type of product in, in supply chain. The vast majority of agriculture is really created to produce food to feed the animals, that then we eat the animals. As so if you want to now take that food and directly go to human nutrition, there's much, much better ways to do that than using the current system. So what you're starting to see now is the consumer pull is getting stronger and stronger, you're seeing some of these more ecosystem supply chain companies, new ingredients, new proteins by the agricultural system for human nutrition coming through. And I think that's uh, fascinating because that then enables more and more innovation on top of that. Mm -hmm. and, and let's talk about some just areas of interest now for you. You, you, know, you were at Possible Foods for 11 years. You're, you're ex exploring new pastures, as it were. Um, what is exciting to you? And also, what is some of the areas that are maybe not being talked about enough? Yeah. So the, I mean, the whole impetus of Impossible and even the solar work I was doing before is to create a much more sustainable world. And right now, the biggest threat we have is climate change. Temperatures continue to rise. The forecasts and the projections are have gotten slightly better, but still, you know, the target out of Paris was 1.5 C and we're really on a trajectory from most of the research I see at about 2.8 degrees Celsius. So we're almost double essentially where we need to get. And it's hard to see that changing by, you know, decarbonizing, cleaning up industries because there's so much hard, good infrastructure there. And there's so many different pressure points that, you know, push it in a less sustainable way as long, even as you're pushing it in a sustainable direction. And it makes sense. We are increasing livelihoods of people globally as well. And, you know, you know, energy access is number one. And so then you get to the sustainability side too, which is getting higher and higher in the agenda, but it's not always number one and understandably. And so if that's the reality, you know, what can we do on the climate technology side of starting to pull uh, CO2 and methane, nitrous oxide out of systems after use, knowing that these systems are going to exist. And so I think there's more and more starting to happen there. One area that I've been focusing on the last few months is uh, methane. In a 20-year period, uh, methane is about 82 times more potent than CO2, and it's much lower concentrated. Um, so then, you know, every methane molecule you would say you capture, convert, do something with, you know, has an 82 times effect on reducing greenhouse gases over the next 20 years than CO2. And it's a much more reactive molecule, too. And I don't see as much stuff happening in that yet, but I think it will. 
And I'm starting to hear a little more um, chatter on that. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, but I think, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, every decade matters. And, you know, we're going to solve this in probably 100 plus years, um, certainly as a trajectory. But every time we can have a short term win to buy ourselves time to solve it, it's a huge, huge win. What are some examples of how to reduce methane? Interesting. So, I mean, the I'm trying to think what I should say in this. I'm working on lots of ideas right now. Okay. Uh, Whatever but, you uh, feel comfortable. It could be broad, but maybe yeah. maybe we're trying to inspire founders, but also maybe not create competitors for you. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, I think the more people working on this stuff, the better. I think you look at the industries, you have kind of two sides of the, the equation. One is where does methane come from? And then two is, you know, what do you do with methane once it's out in the environment? And so there's, you know, where methane comes from. Dairy and beef and animal agriculture is a massive driver. Uh, and the natural gas industry and energy production is as well. I think much bigger than I think we've thought. And I think there's a bunch of research coming out now with satellite imaging, looking at leaks and just ways that you know, there's fluxes of methane going in the atmosphere. Uh, you have rice production is actually a methane producer, landfills, old mines, old like oil wells. And then you also have the permafrost and some of these lakes that are getting formed. They have a meth methane producing organisms in them. And so there's all kinds of kind of dispersed sources globally, which also creates a lot of um, opportunity on ways to solve, you know, those sources that are happening. Then on the other side and, um, um, you know, after use side, it's like, okay, say it does happen. You go to some of the concentrated systems where the concentration isn't the 1.9 PPM that it is in the air here. That is more concentrated and the more concentrated, typically you can have more impact on it faster from a, a cost and scalability perspective. And so I think through all of that, there's opportunities galore. Uh, you know, what to do on that. I don't think it's very well understood because the focus has been bigger, more on CO2. Understandably, it's a much more prevalent uh, um, greenhouse gas and it lasts in the atmosphere much longer. Um, but I think, you know, like I said, it's like in a 20 year period, it can have a big effect by tackling methane too. Um, you know, one thing that um, uh, Pat, uh, founder of Impossible, and Mike Eisen, a uh, Berkeley professor, wrote a paper that they published uh, at the start of this year showing that, you know, if we change the the world's food system to get rid of animal agriculture in the next 15 years and go out of a plant-based ecosystem, we could flatline greenhouse gases for 30 years and buy ourselves 30 years of time to solve all these other issues. And that's based on you know, reducing the greenhouse gases from um, animal agriculture, plus letting that biomass grow back on. Because looking at you know, systems, um, you know, chemical processes are tough to scale, especially when you're looking at the prices, you know, what carbon markets are, especially with CO2, that's a very you know, low energy molecule. Um, but if you use biological systems, it's a really only way that we've scaled that we know, uh, essentially at this to, you know, capture this. And then methane, I think, you know, I think within those systems, there's opportunities galore. I think on the backside, you look at, okay, what are biological systems that can do this? What are catalytic or engineering ways you can do it? I think you can kind of do both because one of the advantages of methane is you don't need to capture it. It's like if you, you know, oxidize it, it's like it goes through a much, much less reactive or much, much less potent greenhouse gas form which also I mean, just creates a lot of opportunities to do something faster. Excellent. And, you know, just to kind of wrap up, uh, I think that was a great wrap, but then I forgot. There is actually a huge thing I want to ask you about um, uh -oh. on, on your more recent role with Impossible Foods, which is sort of international. So, I, you know, I'm fascinated. Like, what, was, what were the cultural differences that you had to deal with uh, as you were scaling the brand that maybe is helpful to founders? Are there different things happening in Europe? I mean, certainly there's things happening in South Asia, even around religion, even things people will not or ever eat. But just any sort of curious, interesting uh, insights as you had to do that. 
Yeah. So I think, um, you know, as you think about internationalizing businesses, the first thing does start with product. And so I'll use the example for Impossible. When we first launched our product, uh, the version 1.0, it worked really well on a flat top grill. It worked very well on a burger. It didn't work that well in other applications. You could make it work, but it was a bit finicky. And so when you went to 2.0, um, a lot of the focus is making the product much more robust and versatile. And so you can use it in different cooking devices, different cuisines, different types of temperatures. And uh, it enabled it, it essentially enabled us to do international. And when we went to international in Hong Kong in 2018, and so, you know, people ask us a lot of why we went to Asia first. Well, Asia is where 44% of meat is consumed today. Hmm. And so if we want to tackle this, you know, we have to tackle the Asian markets. We wanted to start early. Now, the product that we had there wasn't great, I think, for a lot of the cuisines that we were trying to, you know, push it into. Once we had the 2.0 product, it opened up so many doors because it was much more versatile. You really could use it in anything. So I think that's one. Two, you know, food is culture. And so you have to think about it this way. It's like we're not just going to say, okay, go eat this food. It's, a, you know, an American food. That does work to a certain extent. But, you know, we're replacing a, essentially a base ingredient in the food system in a lot of ways. You, you work with, you know, pork, beef, chicken, and things like that. And then you make stuff out of them. You tip, don't typically just, you know, serve, obviously, the animal whole. Um, and so you, you're using this as an ingredient that then you can locally make culturally relevant. And so if the U.S. is burgers, you might go to another place and actually they, they consume beef in a different way. But if the ground meat behaves you know, similarly to the ground meat from an animal, um, we don't really need to change the product. Then we just give it to chefs and let them um, modify you know, the cooking parameters and the seasonings and stuff like this to hit the local consumers to be culturally relevant and not just like you know, a, you know, a forced American brand of American product, which I think was really powerful for us as we started expanding internationally. What's the, what are your most favorite cuisine, uh, integrations worldwide? If we're, I'm a foodie, so where, where do I need to go and what am I going to try that would surprise me or delight me? Well, I'm a, I think one of my comfort foods is uh, Mexican food. So I, I've made so many impossible like burritos and tacos and things like that. I do that all the time. Uh, the pork product is like, I made Mapo tofu with it when I was living in Hong Kong. Uh, it's fantastic. Uh, I think I've tried tried a lot of different stuff and it, the fun thing is you can make anything work and i'm a i'm a foodie that way too i one of our actually launched customers in uh singapore they did a, a beef wellington and so it was fast i've never had a beef wellington in my life i, I mean I, I grew up on a beef farm but it's like this is midwest us it's like you typically just have relatively basic cuisine <laughs> and i tried it I was like it was delicious um so yeah i think that was that was fun um uh, a lot of bows and dumplings and stuff like this. I think that have been really kind of you know, fun through the Asian cuisines. I, I was living over there, so I think I probably have a little bit of a bend that way. Uh, yeah. That's great. I mean, I'll shout out to the Istanbul restaurant in Honolulu. They made mm. a, they have an impossible uh, kofte kebabs, which are nice. amazing. We get them every time we go. So it's it's really been incredible to see how the, this innovation has been reflected in all these different cultures. Thank you again, Nick, for your time. We're really excited to share the, you know, the insights with our community. And um, until we meet next. Sounds good. Cool. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Climb by VSC. Thank you so much for watching and listening. A few quick shout outs before you go. Our thanks to Nick Halla for coming here to share his expertise and insights with us. Special thanks also to Credo for their help in producing and promoting this episode. If you'd like to visit any part of today's conversation again, you can find the full transcript on vscventures.com. Our thanks to Josue Romero for posting those every week. Lastly, 
If you've listened this far, please leave us a rating on Spotify or review on iTunes. It only takes a few seconds, really helps us out, and as far as I know, still carbon neutral. Well, that's it for now. We'll see you next week on Climb by VSC.